Pray for them. We are very excited to meet baby Jack-Jack. Um, we're going to be back in Ephesians today. I remember last week I told you we're going to finish up this section. We're going to wrap up verses 11 to 14. I was mistaken. Because this week we will be in verses 11 to 14 again. Um, I was going through some old notes, and I found this interesting, uh, just this little line that I had in one of my outlines. I was talking about David. I said, uh, David is both a type and an anti-type of Christ. Um, David slays Goliath, just as Christ defeats death, hell, and the grave. That's why David is a type of Christ. But David is also an anti-type of Christ. And I'm telling you this because we should see this in all of the saints of the Old Testament who performed these great works of God. When they perform works that are great, when they glorify God, we can see them as a type of Christ. But at the same time, we should recognize that they also have traits that make them an anti-type of Christ. Things that we should not see Christ in. So just as David kills Goliath and Christ defeats death, hell, and the grave, David steals a married woman and kills her husband, and Jesus doesn't. Um, This was the mistake that the Pharisees made. We've talked about this several times, and last week in particular, as we looked at verse 11 and the contrast with verse 13, as Paul talks first about himself and the Jews, and then later sort of marries these two groups together under the gospel. Um, we talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, these men were to the Jews of that day, to the Jews of this day, to the Pharisees, they were idols. They worshipped Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Um, and that is what we want to avoid. We should recognize that in these men we can see Christ when it is the work of God that we see performed through them. And when in these men we see sin, we can see ourselves. Um, I remember a, there was this uh, conference that was held uh, up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and this preacher gets up there and he talks uh, on and on about David and how uh, you know people are always trying to kill him. And at one point he says, you know, you need Saul, you need trial in your life, because if you've got a Saul, that means you're a David. Uh, and then the very next day they had a preacher. I don't know why they had this guy there. Um, but at this very same conference, this other preacher stands up there and says, you're not David, right? You didn't kill Goliath. You didn't kill death, hell, and the grave. Jesus did. You're not David. You are the Israelites standing there being afraid. And this is the wrong sermon outline. Uh. 
I need to find the right sermon outline before I really get started. <laughs> I could preach last week's again. It's the same text. Let's see. I might have to just print it again. Well, I'm just going to print it again. The printer's right behind me. <laughs> we're, uh, we're very high tech here. I don't have a screen back there that has the outline up there for me. Um, but here we are. Let's see, print. All right, it'll be out in seven to 12 minutes. <laughs> so we're going to be in Ephesians again. So I'm going to read this section while uh, I get my stuff together. Um, starting in verse 13. 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Actually, we'll read the greeting. It's important. It's the Bible. It is sufficient for equipping you for every good work. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, yep, this is the one. See, that's the the problem here is I have the same title on both outlines because it's the same text. In love, he predestined us for adoption. We're back in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Remember, that's Paul talking about himself and the Jews. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And now he speaks to the Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we're going to focus in now on verses 13 and 14. Last week we talked about uh, Paul and the Jews and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this week we're going to focus in on verse 13. And in particular, remember, Israel worshipped God through shadows, right? They had the law, which was a shadow of the things to come. This is what we see in the letter to the Hebrews. But in Christ, we have the full revelation of God's redemptive plan, right? Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the revelation of the plan that we had for the whole time. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Verse 13, in him also, when you... Heard. So we're going to talk about this phrase, when you heard. <clears throat> Back in September, 
I did a little mini-series on uh, the means of grace in the local church as part of um, Pastor James was doing a series on the church. Um, And one of the things we talked about were the means of grace. And one of the distinctions that I made was that there are salvific means of grace and there are non-salvific means of grace. And the distinction there is that When you experience this salvific means of grace, it is effective, effectual for your salvation. And then these non-salvific means of grace are those things that you experience after salvation that help to grow and mature your faith. And so these non-salvific means of grace, there are many of them, right? We gather together with the saints and we listen to the word preached. We take of the Lord's table every Sunday. We sing together. We pray together. These things that God has established for us to do together in assembly, they are effective for maturing our faith, for growing us in our knowledge, growing us in our love of Christ. But the salvific means of grace are unique. There is only one of them, and that is the proclamation of the gospel. Right? We affirm that salvation is of the Lord, right? This is what we've been talking about when we've been speaking of God's election, God's sovereignty, right? Psalm chapter 3, the psalmist says that salvation is from the Lord, your blessing be upon your people. Paul declares in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, And so this gospel, this declaration, these are the means that God has appointed for the salvation of his people. So people often make the mistake of saying that, you know, if you affirm God's sovereignty, if you believe that God saves his people, that God has elected, predestined those who would be saved... Why do you have to share the gospel? Why does God need you? Why does God need you to evangelize? It's worth mentioning this objection because you will hear it. If you proclaim the sovereignty of God in salvation, people will ask you, why do you need to evangelize? The reason we do that is because we recognize that, as Paul tells us there in Romans 1.16, that this evangelism, this proclamation, this declaration, this is what God has said he is going to use for the salvation of his people. This is the ordinary means, the salvific means of grace that God uses to pour out his grace on his people. He has promised that his word would not return empty. When you proclaim the gospel, God is faithful to save his people through it. God has declared the precise nature of the means of his salvific grace. And so it's entirely inconsistent to conclude that you know, we don't need to evangelize. right? And, then, and there are churches that, you know, on the surface, you might, you might see that they affirm the sovereignty of God. But when you get into it, you will find that they do not believe in evangelism. 
right? Any church that tells you that evangelism, evangelism is unnecessary is a synagogue of Satan, right? That's the work of the devil, to, to stop the proclamation of the gospel, isn't it? So to understand what Paul is talking about when he says, when you heard, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10 that I read before we got started. Um, In particular, we're going to start in uh, verse 12, because verse 12 sort of gives us a summary of what we talked about last week. Um, These two sections here in Romans 10 and in Ephesians 1, they really run uh, pretty parallel um, there's a little bit more detail here, here in Romans 10. And so I'm doing that thing again where we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So I'm using Romans 10 here as a commentary on Ephesians 1. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, and then we're going to start in verse uh, 12 as we get into it. So Paul writes, starting in verse 12, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there in verse 12, Paul says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And this isn't the first time he's said this in Romans. Right Back in Romans 3, uh, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Right, Paul spends Romans chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 sort of going back and forth, back and forth between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, establishing it that they all have the same problem, right? He lays out this problem in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. He speaks of the wickedness of man. And then starting in chapter 2, he speaks of the Gentiles and he speaks of the Jews. And then he gets here to chapter 3, verse 9. Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. And so we've got the same problem, the wickedness of man, the curse of Adam. And because we have the same problem, that problem has the same solution. There is no special dispensation of grace reserved for Israel. There is one dispensation of grace and is found in Christ. And only those who are found in Christ whose debt has been paid on the cross of Christ, are those who receive the grace of God. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, not on those who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but on those who call on the name of Christ. So in verse 13, that's where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to talk about another um, sort of objection or misuse uh, that we see here. 
Um, the most famous version of this mistake comes from John 3.16. Um, you've heard someone use the word whosoever to somehow speak of the universality of God's grace. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him is often uh, posited that this idea that John presents that whoever believes in him means that in some way everyone is able, everyone is capable of believing. That God has given to everyone just enough grace to make the decision for themselves. But this idea that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is not telling us something about everyone. It's telling us something about the Lord. It's that the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises that the Lord has appointed the means of salvation. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us who it is that calls upon the name of the Lord. Starting in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we have this sort of caricature of salvation in our culture that God needs your help or God needs you to do something to complete the work that Christ performed. What Paul establishes here for us is the promise of God to use the proclamation of the gospel to save his people. So here in Romans 10, Paul sort of goes in the, uh, the reverse order of how this works. Right? He starts at belief and then works backwards to preaching and then ultimately to the sending of the preacher. So in verse 14, back in Romans 10, how will they then call on him whom they have not believed? You cannot call on something you don't believe, right? You cannot call on Christ if you don't believe in Christ. Not that you would want to. But some people say they believe in Christ, but they do not call upon Christ. If you believe a false gospel, you're dialing the wrong number. 
when you call on him. If the gospel that you believe is one of works, you're not calling on Christ, right? So you must believe in the true Christ in order to call upon him. You cannot believe in the true Christ if you have never heard the true Christ. Now, the accessibility of the Bible that we have makes this a little bit different. We need to understand this sort of in our context because it's different from Paul's context. Right? Paul's writing to Rome where, realistically, the, the gospel of Christ was new. It was um, you know, not everywhere. There was you know, no scripture to be read in Rome. And so the church in Rome had Romans. That's what they had. And so Paul's writing to a church in a place where Christ is largely unknown and the gospel is largely inaccessible. But for us, we have the Bible. And so that means that even in a false church, the gospel is accessible to you if you have a Bible and you read it. Right? And so I don't want to stand up here and you know, claim that we are the one true church. Right? We are not the one true church of Claxton or of America. Because the gospel is here. Right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So the gospel is found here in Scripture, and for those who are elect of God, the Spirit is faithful to bring the word alive to them. Right? This is what we see in John 3. The Spirit blows when and where it wishes. Sitting down and reading your Bible is sufficient for hearing and knowing the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 8, we see an example of this. Um, We have Philip, uh, who's sent, and he meets this uh, Ethiopian who is reading Isaiah. I'll just read this section. Um, Now an angel of the Lord, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along to the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, 
Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So we have this Ethiopian who's reading from Isaiah uh, chapter 53. That's what I read before we took the Lord's table last week. So this guy is reading Isaiah, right? And the gospel is there in Isaiah 53. But just as the saints of the Old Testament saw the gospel, they heard the promises of God. They knew the promise of the Messiah. They saw Christ through this shadow. So Isaiah 53 is one of these shadows. And if you are blinded by Judaism you're not going to see the radiance of Christ in those shadows. So this man is blinded by Judaism, but by the decree of God, he knows it, and he reaches out to Philip, who was sent to teach him. So Philip preaches to him the revelation of the Christ, the one that Isaiah was speaking of, and his eyes are opened. All you know is Judaism, and you read scripture from the place of Judaism, all you're going to get out of it is Judaism, apart from the supernatural work of God to open your eyes. And the same applies today, right? Not just to Judaism. Judaism here is a proxy for any sort of uh, cult or denomination or church you find yourself in where you are blinded to the true gospel. Right? The gospels of Rome, the gospels of the evangelical cults, the gospels of the Watchtower Society, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. All of these things, all these, all these people have the same Bible. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses changed it. <laughs> but they are blind. They are blind to the truth of Scripture. And so this preaching is necessary. Right? This preaching is the ordinary means that God has appointed for saving his people. It is the way that God has promised, that God has established for his people to learn and know the gospel of Christ. Then in verse 15... Back in Romans 10 again. In verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Right, we don't have people teleporting around much anymore. Right, Philip was a unique circumstance that God used to show us something, right? I'm not aware that God is any longer in the business of teleporting people with much frequency. And so, it is the responsibility of the local church to train the sheep to share the good news as is appropriate. It is the responsibility of your elders to teach you, to train you, to equip you to share the gospel in your life. 
What this does not mean is that we will be having a street preaching class. Not everyone is called to stand on the street corner and with loud voice proclaim the gospel. Um, in our town, it's probably not even that great of an idea because no one's going to hear you. <laughs> There's no one here. <laughs> um, so not everyone is called to be an evangelist in that way. right? Not everyone is called to stand up here and proclaim the gospel to the sheep. Not everyone is called to be a vocational evangelist. But it also does not mean preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. Right? There's that quote that is often misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Right? Preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. Okay, words are always necessary, right? You can be nice to people. You can, you know, the idea is that you should be so nice, so kind, so, you know, righteous in your living that people ask you why you're so nice and kind and righteous. You don't have to tell them. But the gospel is words. The gospel is the news. The gospel is the declaration, the proclamation, the words of Christ. If I'm supposed to teach you about the righteousness of Christ with my actions without using words, I'm going to fail. (laughs) I'm not going to be good enough at that. But what it does mean is that as you live your life, opportunities will be placed before you where you are able to share the gospel. And it might be five seconds. It might be five minutes. It might be five hours. Right? We don't have to be, you know, walking around telling every single person that we see the gospel in 10, 20 minutes. But there will be opportunities for you to drop it into conversation, to make it just sort of the subject of what you talk about with people. And one of our jobs is to train you, to equip you to be able to do that. And the best way that we can do that is just to make you confident in your knowledge and your understanding. Right, that's one of the, when I have sort of you know, taught people, you know, how, how do I drop the gospel into basic conversation, everyday conversation? The number one thing, I think, that has helped people has been saying, you just need to be sure what your hope is. It's the same thing that we get our confidence, our assurance for salvation in. You just need to be confident, sure of what your hope is in. And then you just tell people what your hope is. Tell people why you do weird stuff on Sunday morning. (laughs) Like, get up. (laughs) Now, for some of you men, it does mean that you are to be trained to preach. The men of the church, some of you are called to be elders, to be deacons, to be evangelists. 
And it is, again, the responsibility of the elders to train you in that, to teach you to do that, to teach you to teach. Now, in verse 16, Paul tells us that not everyone's going to believe. Right? But we we knew that, right? He says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is a conversation Isaiah is having with God the Father. And God's telling Isaiah, who's a prophet, to go and prophesy. He's telling, this is what you need to tell the people. And Isaiah's like, they don't want to listen to me, God. No one listens anymore. And so we know that when we share the gospel, not everyone is going to listen. Not everyone is going to receive it. Some people are going to say, okay, weirdo. But we also know that the gospel has two purposes. right? The first one we talked about, the gospel is the means of grace for the salvation of God's people. It's the thing that God has established to bring about the conversion, the regeneration, the salvation of his people. But we also know that the gospel is used to harden the hearts of people. Right? God's word never returns void. So when you teach the gospel, it is either going to be the means that God uses to save his people, or it is going to further harden the hearts of people against the Lord. And this is just one of the things that God has appointed the gospel for. And because of this, because there is a purpose for the gospel in all people, we are to preach the gospel indiscriminately. Everyone gets to hear it. Right, and there are churches out there that will, you know, claim that in some way, through some method, they know who is elect. And then they can just target their gospel preaching to those people. Right, this absolutely ridiculous. We preach the gospel indiscriminately, and the Lord is faithful to save his people through it. Verse 17, faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Faith does not come through seeing people be nice to you. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Preach the gospel at all times with your words because they are necessary. (laughs) So that is what Paul is talking about when he says, when you heard, back in Ephesians 1. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So moving on, we're going to talk about this phrase, the word of truth. The word of truth. Remember, we've talked a lot about the confidence that we can have in the gospel. Right? Because God is faithful to fulfill his promises, because God has appointed to save his people in all wisdom and insight, according to his purpose, we have confidence in the gospel. And here Paul reiterates this confidence when he calls it the word of truth, right? The temptation of Satan is to doubt. The temptation of the devil is for you to doubt the gospel, for you to find some reason why maybe you don't measure up. And it's really easy 
Once you have bought into the lie that you need to measure up, it's really easy to recognize that you don't measure up, right? Because you don't. So the temptation of Satan is to doubt this gospel. Remember, the gospel is simple. Right? We've talked about this before. I don't remember which verse we were in. It's probably multiple times. Um, the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. All right, my children can understand the gospel. Your children can understand the gospel. It is simple. In Matthew 18, uh, we see at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I bet it was Peter. That was Peter's idea. Peter came up with that question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus calls to him a child and puts him in the midst of them and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right, so if belief in the gospel requires some lofty, high-level intellectual understanding of theology, what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 18? Unless you become like a child. So putting complex intellectual requirements onto belief in the gospel destroys this faith. It destroys this childlike faith that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 18. it makes you doubt makes you doubt the word of truth doing so makes you guilty of the sin described in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 18 whoever receives one such child in my name receives me but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea alright the last time I talked about this brother Mike liked my analogy, theological drug dogs. Right? We've got people looking for mistakes in your doctrine and then pointing at them to cause you to doubt your salvation. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. Jesus isn't actually talking about actual children here, right? He's talking about the sheep. He's talking about the children of God, those in the faith, in the church. He's talking about the person who has this childlike faith. And there are two ways that children are made to fear. You have legalism. That's where you don't measure up. You look at your life, you look at your works, you look at your sin, you say, I'm not good enough for God. And you doubt the word of truth. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. This childlike faith is sufficient for full assurance in the work of Christ. And we're going to get there and see why in a minute when we talk about the spirit and the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. So any teaching about works that causes one with childlike faith to fear that they have not done enough good works or that their faith alone is insufficient for full confidence of salvation destroys this childlike faith. In fact, that section of notes that I was reading through where I found that funny thing I said about David and Jesus 
It came from one of my sermons in Titus, and Titus actually tells me how I am supposed to exhort you to good works. I'm thinking about it just now, so I'm going to go and find it because it's relevant. Uh, Let's see. Hmm. I don't remember if it was in Titus 1 or Titus 2. I'll just preach about it next week. Because it'll be relevant next week too. This teaching about legalism causes us to fear damnation. It causes us to fear the wrath of God. The wrath of God that Christ paid for. The wrath of God that Christ endured on the cross for his people. If that is your teaching that causes the children of God to fear, then it would be better for you to be drowned in the sea. Now, what I was talking about with this simple gospel, this idea of putting these complex intellectual ideas as requirements for faith, is this other way in which children are caused to fear, and that's through suspicion, right? This doctrinal suspicion, these theological drug dogs who are going around sniffing your back pocket. Just as legalism places a burden of works, of performance, of behavior upon you, the suspicion about your doctrine places a burden of knowledge, a burden of study upon you, a burden of artificial requirements created by wickedness that cause you to fear. These people are suspicious And in their hearts, they deny Christ by denying that your childlike faith is sufficient. Right? We're not the heresy police. We're not coming to get you. We should not be sniffing out theological errors. We should not be putting these intellectual requirements on faith and causing children to fear. Now, there is a place for correction, right? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 Scripture is sufficient for correction. Right? We are going to make mistakes, and we are going to be wrong sometimes. I've certainly been wrong before. I've probably been wrong in this sermon at least once. We're going to make mistakes. So how do we deal with it? We point fingers and accuse and tell our friends, watch out. Right? No. We say, okay, what does Scripture say about this? And we work through this together in love because we love each other. And as long as we love each other, we keep working through it. We can keep talking about it. We can keep discussing it as long as we love each other. We can stay together, stay together in unity because we have one faith, one gospel, one word. Sometimes we're going to disagree on stuff, and it's okay to do that. But the gospel itself is simple. So simple that a child can understand it. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. So it's common to see biblical authors use simple phrases like this to describe bigger things than is immediately evident. Right? When they say believe in him, when Paul writes, you believed in him, he's saying something specific. Okay? But this phrase has been taken sort of in our culture, in evangelical cults, to mean anything from believing that Jesus existed in some way all the way to the other end, if you disagree with me, you are lost. <laughs> right? That's what we see with these people who are suspicious of your doctrine. If you disagree with me, you're not my brother. But there are also those out there who take this idea that, you know, as long as you believe a little bit in Jesus, at least that he was a person and existed, that's good enough. But no, what Paul is talking about here when he says believed in him, he's talking about this whole gospel that he has been talking about the whole time. Believed in him is shorthand for the person and the work of Christ that we have been learning about through Paul's instructions so far. So when he says, you believed in him, he means you believed the things that I said in verses 3 through 10. You believed the gospel of Christ. You believed the work that he performed. And finally, Paul goes on and he says, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, there's two distinct works of the Holy Spirit going on here. All right, there's two things, two different things that the Holy Spirit does that we want to talk about. First is the regeneration of the heart of man. All right, this is what we see in, in John chapter 3. Right? Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus at their little secret agent meeting in the middle of the night. Because right, remember, Nicodemus couldn't be seen with Jesus. Right? Nicodemus, teacher of all Israel, he meets Jesus at night, so nobody knows that he's meeting this Jesus guy. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I'm not sure if Nicodemus was speaking for himself there or for the Pharisees in general or if he was lying or not. <laughs> going to be honest. I don't know where Nicodemus is really coming from here. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus asks the famous silly question, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, totally deflects the question. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then I'll read through verse 10 because it's my favorite thing Jesus says in this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? <laughs> 
And so Jesus tells us there that the Spirit blows when and where it wishes. And what he's talking about there is this new birth, this regeneration, the work of the Spirit to bring you to life, to open your eyes, to allow you to hear the words of Christ. Right? Because you were dead. Right? There's nothing you could do. You were dead, and dead people don't make themselves alive. Right? That's the mistake of the evangelical cults. That's the heresy that says that everyone's got enough grace that they can act on it on their own. No, you were dead. You didn't do anything. You were dead. In the ground. Buried. Dead. But the Spirit brings you to life. The Spirit brings life to your flesh. The other thing that the Spirit does here is that it establishes this faith that leads to life. This is where Paul talks about the seal. Back to Ephesians 1. I've got all these little things in here. I really should put one in Ephesians 1. In him... You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what is a seal? What is he talking about here? He's talking about this thing that you put on a letter that guarantees the authenticity of the message. Right? The king's seal established the authority and the validity of some correspondence. Right? This seal distinguishes the true and the authoritative with the false and the transient. It is this seal, this work of the Spirit, that gives the believer confidence in the things that cannot be rationalized. It establishes the work of faith. This work of the Spirit is the thing that guarantees that your faith is true and authentic. This work of the Spirit is the thing that distinguishes your faith with a faith, a belief, that is transient, that is false, that is fleeting. And it is the thing that gives you confidence in things that cannot be rationalized. Remember when we talked about Peter and how he tries to rationalize Jesus' selection of the disciples? Right? There are things that, I mean, there are things that I've said to you that don't make any sense. Right? We read scripture and there are things in here that don't make any sense to our fleshly brains, right? There are things that don't make logical sense. And of course, Paul anticipates this when he gives us instruction to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly. There it is. The gospel is foolishness. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It doesn't make sense that God would die for us. Doesn't make any sense. Right? This is what Peter was doing. Remember, Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler, and Jesus is like, All right, did you keep the law? And the guy's like, Yeah, all of it, whole thing. I mean, he was lying, but he said it. <laughs> I kept the whole thing, and Jesus says, Okay, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the dude leaves really sad because he was super rich. And then Peter said, We left our jobs, we sold everything we had. What do we get? Right? Peter tries to rationalize the work of God in him. Peter tries to point to the works of his flesh as the reason that God chose him. He gets it backwards, right? God chose Peter and Peter obeyed. The faith of Peter was the gift of God. The work of Peter in leaving his net was the gift of God, the good work prepared beforehand for Peter. Right? It doesn't make sense that we were elect of God. Right? There was nothing we could do to earn it. There was no thing in us that God looked upon and said, yes, that's what I want on my team. These works of the flesh, these salvation by works, Judaism, right? that's what Jesus deals with in the Gospels, right? The Pharisees, Judaism. Roman Catholicism, easy believism, sinners prayerism, baptismal baptismal regenerationism. As long as you are sincereism, that's one of my favorites. As long as you are sincere, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere about it. These are all attempts to rationalize the work of God in the hearts of men. Because surely there's something you must do. Surely God requires something of us. Because it doesn't make sense that it would be free. Jesus, we left our jobs and our families to follow you. What do we get? If your God does anything less than everything for salvation, then your God has done nothing. Because he's not real. You made him up. We cannot rationalize God's work in us because there's nothing we could ever bring to the table. But his grace is free. It is found in the work of Christ in dying for his people. And it only makes sense if the Holy Spirit has granted it to you to believe it, to cling to it as your only hope, your only peace, and your only comfort in life and in death. This is the gospel, that you are not your own, that you belong, body and soul, and in life and in death, to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he has paid for your sins with his blood. And he has set you free from the tyranny of the devil, the chains of your flesh, the curse of your earthly father, Adam. 
Not just that, but he watches over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of his father. Your father. That all things in this life must, not that they might, not that they can, not that you hope, not if you cooperate, all things work together for your salvation. Because you belong to him. You have been given to Christ as a bride. By his Holy Spirit who assures you of eternal life and empowers you to live for him until your death when you will enjoy eternal intimacy and communion with him in the presence of God for all eternity. This is the gospel. This is the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, the guarantee of your inheritance. This is the work of Christ. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Then Paul says in verse 15 of Ephesians 1, For this reason, for this gospel... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray and then we're going to take the table. God, we thank you for this word of truth, the guarantee of our inheritance. We thank you for this seal, this work of the Holy Spirit, and not only bringing life to our dead bodies, but in establishing our faith, establishing our confidence. And now as we take of your table, give us grace for the strengthening of our faith as we remember that work, as we remember the death of Christ, and as we remember that death could not contain him, that the same power that brought Jesus back from the grave the one that gives us life. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.